and chapter 3, First Peter chapter 3, the first six verses this morning. This uh, follows in the uh, train of thought that he's already established in chapter 2. In chapter 2, in verse 13, he spoke to all Christians to submit themselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors and so on, to rulers generally. Are we okay? Okay. All right. Uh, verse 18, to servants, be submissive to your masters. It's the same word that's used in verse 13. It's the same word that Paul uses also. And we spoke about that last week. Now, in chapter 3, Peter addresses wives. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God were also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So this is our passage uh, today. As I said, it follows on from the submission to government and submission to masters, but this one is much more controversial, isn't it? Especially in our contemporary culture. And this is an area where um, Christians should be different than the world. They should be a witness to the world in uh, the way that uh, they are towards their husbands. We live in times, and we've been living in these times for a long time now, but uh, things have escalated, things have got a great deal more exacerbated, where feminism's pervasive influence has come to kind of, it's just got everywhere. It's got into all of those places, in fact, where... Uh, it's not even looked upon as being feminism or the influence of feminism. If you look into Hollywood and uh, you look into the, um, often in the, the films and in the, the serials, not that I watch a lot of them, but the women are portrayed as being the strong person. The person is never wrong. The person that can always beat up the bad guy. Usually four 300-pound bad guys at the same time. And uh, come out unscathed completely. There's no character progression at all in the woman hero today. 
She never makes a mistake, therefore she doesn't need to change. She's just right all the time, and she beats up everyone that comes against her. She's a myth. She's a myth. She's not a woman. That's not true. I mean, let's be honest about this. This is not true. Um, some time ago, the uh, and this is all introductory material, and some of you that may not like the way that I'm introducing uh, the sermon. I hope that it's not the case. But I just feel that we need to address things head on. We have to address the problem with our culture if we're going to understand what God's saying to us. Some years ago, the most successful boxer in a uh, women's boxer in history, I mean, she beat up everybody, okay? Got bored and she decided that she would take on a man. And so, and you can see this on, if you go on YouTube, you can go and see this. She decided, she, so they got a man. Not a particularly good boxer. Okay? With no records or no belts or anything like that. They just chose this guy. And certainly for a, a couple of rounds, I think, she, her, her uh, boxing ability made her outbox this individual until he got mad. And then he landed a couple of punches and she was out. I mean, she wasn't just groggy, she was out. The, this is the greatest women boxer of all time. She could not be in the boxing ring with even an average male fighter. The U.S. soccer team, women's soccer team, brought a lot of media attention. The media thought it was these women were so wonderful because they wanted equal pay with the men soccer players. What wasn't reported in the um, in our uh, newspapers and media was that this women's U.S. soccer team played a bunch of 15-year-old boys and were beaten 5 nothing. Do you think the male national team would play 15-year-old boys and be beaten 5 nothing? No, they'd win about 20 nothing. They would run rings around them. There's a huge difference, folks. There's a huge difference. Serena Williams, probably the greatest woman tennis player, arguably, that there ever was, openly told um, a, uh, a British tennis player who'd been advocating for um, equality and so on in this, she said, please don't. Please don't. There's no way I could play against these male players. This... Everybody used to know this stuff, okay? But nowadays, people have believed the lies. And even if you say you don't believe it, there's still this, this idea of you, the woman saying, you can't tell me what to do, the woman you know, being strong, the woman being career-focused instead of family-focused, which is bringing its own problems, has caused all kinds of issues in the church. And that's what I'm concerned about. In the church. We live in an era of convenience and personal autonomy. 
And you can't have a good marriage if you buy into convenience and personal autonomy. There has to be a way that a marriage works, and today we're looking at uh, the wife's role as Peter expounds it. Now, if I was a preacher that preached topical sermons, instead of going through a book, I would miss this, wouldn't I? I'd skip it. But because I preach through Bible books, I preach what the Bible says. What's the next passage? That's what I'm going to expound. And so your argument, if you have an argument, if I've expounded this correctly, is with God, not with me. And I am addressing women generally today because that's what the passage is about. The first part of the passage in chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. How? Like slaves are submissive to their masters. Like people are supposed to be submissive to their rulers. It's the same word. This is what God is saying. You say, I don't like it. That's fine. But you'll have to take it up with him when you meet him, and you will meet him. The word submissive is the Greek term hupotasso, and it means to put yourself under. That's what it means. So it means submissive. It's not, this is not a mistranslation. This is not a, uh, you know, men translated the Bible so they just chose a really hard word um, just to translate. No, this is what the Greek word means, okay? It does not say that wives or women are to be submissive to every male. The Bible does not teach that. It says wives be submissive to your husbands. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, adds, as unto the Lord, as unto the Lord. You are to be submissive to your husbands as you would be submissive to the Lord. So that gives you an idea of what the word submission means. You say, well, this doesn't sound like an easy, easy thing to do. It's not, I'm, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. I'm just telling you what it says and... Um, We'll expound and see what Peter gives us as practical advice here, because we need practical advice. He goes on in in, uh, verse 1 to talk about a particular issue, the issue of probably unbelieving, at least disobedient husbands, disobedient to God, disobedient to the Bible, and how a, a wife's conduct can help as a witness to an unbelieving husband. But, and we'll go on to that. But the first issue of submission to your husbands is repeated by Paul. It is a biblical idea and it is, it is not taught by our society. So if you're going to learn from our society, you're not going to be able to follow this command. If you want to have rewards in heaven for this 
then you're going to have to follow what God says. You say, well, oh, hold on a minute. What if my husband asks me to sin? Submit to your husband as to the Lord. Is the Lord ever going to ask you to sin? No. So no, if if your husband's asking you to sin, you can disobey him because you've got a higher authority. Do you see? This is just, this is not about, uh, husbands who are overbearing and, uh, ask you to do sinful things. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the day-to-day way of engaging. So, if it's not an issue of sin, if it's just an issue of, um, interaction in the home and the way that the home is to run, then the command is straightforward to wives. What about if the wife is smarter than the husband? What about if she's more practical and so on than the husband? Well, that can be the case, can't it? Okay, Then you're going to have to need patience and humility in the way that you interact with your husband so that you can maybe help your husband grasp the things he needs to grasp. But you have to do that in a biblical way. You don't do that in a nagging way. You don't do that in a way that contradicts what God has told you to do because then you're in the flesh. You're not in the spirit. Furthermore, it's not going to be received well either. Harsh words stir up anger, remember. So it's important that we start off with a clear understanding of this basic issue. To to Peter, in his day, I understand, this was much easier than it is today. Because this was a patriarchal society. All of the ancient world was a patriarchal society. And let us be quite clear about this, even though it's become politically incorrect to say it, the Bible is a patriarchal book, folks. It's a patriarchal book. There has um, been a movement um, uh, uh, trying to address this issue called complementarianism. Complementarianism. And it's a good word. And it means that the husband and the wife are to complement each other in their roles, the roles being biblical roles. The problem with that issue is that it does not put the emphasis where the Bible puts the emphasis. The Bible does not place the emphasis on complementarianism. It places the, um, the emphasis on the hierarchy just like we've read here. And for that reason, although it's a, you know, the, the reason was a good reason, many complementarians have started to drift and come, become more what's called egalitarian, which is a big word for the description that the husband and the wife are of the same authority. There's not a hierarchy in the home. And not surprisingly, 
egalitarians, that's the group that believe that there ought to be women preachers. Because if there's no hierarchy in the home, then there's no hierarchy outside the home or in the church. Do you see? Even though God is very clear about the fact that women should not teach men. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, it's what the Bible says. So, even though I might say, yes, I'm a complementarian because I believe that the husband and the wife, their roles complement each other, of course, because God's not a God of confusion. Yet, we, we don't stick with that non-biblical term. We have a biblical term, and the biblical term is patriarchy. I'm sorry. It's patriarchy because of the patriarchal book. What does that mean? Does that mean that men get everything that they want, that men can just order women around and treat them as servile and second class? Absolutely not. Of course it doesn't mean that. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul likens the church's relationship to Jesus Christ to the relationship of a man to his wife. Well, Jesus Christ doesn't mistreat the church. Of course, he's a better husband than any of us are to our wives, but he's the model, especially in uh, never, never taking advantage of our wives. But what about those wives that um, have to deal with a husband who's an unbeliever? And there are many like that, of course. How are they to be? Well, he says, even if some do not obey the word, this is husbands, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Without a word, conduct. Now, our human natures want to say word, not so much conduct. Okay? Our human nature wants to reverse that and say, well, I don't have to behave well. I can just say what needs to be said and address the situation that way. You do that, you're not going to have a good marriage. Your conduct needs to be in obedience with God in a way that he set things up. And he says, without a word. Now, men generally, guys, we're thick. Okay? We tend to be thick. Now, what I mean by that is just this. We think about one thing. Okay? We generally have one thing that we're thinking about. That might not be the thing that you're thinking about as a wife. What you're thinking of a, about as a wife may be a number of things and a number of very important things, and he's not thinking about any of them. And you're frustrated by that. And you think, why isn't he thinking about these things that are important? And how do I get him to think about what is important? Well, there is a a fairly easy way. I say fairly easy. You go, because, I mean, some of us take more time grasping the truth than others. But but that is, guys want to help, OK? 
okay? Guys generally want to help their wives. They want to help out. They want to, how can I fix this thing, okay? That's so, that is something that you can tap into. And so if you communicate and then by your actions you show that, by your submission you show that you're going to make it easy because a lot of guys are, are scared of failing, okay, messing it up, not doing what is required, then you will see that most men will try to say, okay, where does she need help here? And we'll come and ask you, where do you need help? What do you need? By your conduct, that's a much better way of persuasion than words. Because look at the context. These, people, these men here in this context are disobedient to the word. So how, are you, how is a wife going to deal with that? By word, by their mouth. How are they going to do that? Well, if they take that tack, they're going to have to correct the husband all the time, aren't they? Which is not submission. So it's much better that they do it without a word by their conduct. Now, more is to be said in here, but look at verse 2. When they observe, when men, the husbands, observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. This is not fear of the husband, that he's going to abuse me or anything like that. It's just like fear of a traffic light, okay? Don't go too far that you understand what the Bible has said about your role and you're not going to step over the, mar- uh, over the line. It's not fear of the husband. It's the fear of God that it's talking about here. And we all need the fear of God so that we don't do everything that our minds tell us to do, our hearts tell us to do. So when they observe and husbands do, they eventually catch on. Your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Moreover, there's there's the outward appearance as well. Verse 3, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Of course, women are to look attractive. Men want women to look attractive. Women want to look good. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But it shouldn't be merely that. This is something that modern society has really messed up. The modern feminist movement has really messed this thing up. Okay? So that women are no longer feminine. They're not. They're no longer feminine. And because they're no longer feminine, men don't want to marry them. Actually, it's worse than that. They don't want to date them. That's the problem that that a lot of women are facing. They don't want to date them anymore. Why? Because they're not feminine. And if you're not feminine, then what do you bring to the table? Just your outward appearance? Well, men being men, I'm afraid in modern society, they can get what they want fairly easily without having to commit. That's just the way it is. I'm not saying that's right, but it's just the way it is. Women have got to have something about them that men find attractive, and that's femininity, folks. It's femininity. 
And it is a beautiful thing. And in fact, he's going to describe it as a beautiful thing. And so it's not merely the arranging of hair, wearing of gold, putting on fine apparel. That, if you can, that, that's fine. But putting on, you know, looking nice, that's fine. There are other times when you get first get up in the morning, you don't look that great. But it, you know what? To a husband, to a husband, that doesn't really matter. To a husband who, especially who admires your, your inner spirit, you're still beautiful. So he says, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. That's the internal person. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. There are a number of things in the Bible that are precious to God. Not many, though. Not many. God doesn't need gold and jewels and precious stones. I mean, he's the one who made them all. He can fill the universe with them. So they're not precious to him. It is usually godliness. It is usually things that reflect his character that he finds precious. For example, in Malachi chapter 3, those people who after hearing the prophet heard and responded correctly to the word of God. They are called precious in God's sight. When I gather my jewels together, they will be among them. And here, a woman who, or a wife who has this gentle and quiet spirit is held to be very precious in God's sight. Now, I'm talking to Christian women. And Christian women are first and foremost daughters of God. First and foremost. No one's going to take that away from you. You That nobility, that uh, privilege that you have is yours. And God is your father and he loves you and he's looking down upon you. What about... You, though, wives, do you want to please your father? Do you want your behavior to be very precious in his sight? Then strive, and it takes striving, to have a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, the word quiet there, that reminds us of what is said in verse 1, without a word doesn't mean, of course, that wives can't talk or converse. He's not saying that. What do you think he is saying? What do you think he is talking about? He's talking about a wife not berating her husband. Talking about a wife who does not just spill out on her husband all of her frustrations and so on. But rather takes, she may have frustrations and they may be valid frustrations. But rather she approaches the the husband in a way that befits the way God has set up a marriage. And in doing that, lo and behold, most of the time the husband twigs, he gets it. 
and there's a, the opportunity for the husband to serve in that area where he needs to serve or change where he needs to change, which can take time. The, the other side of a gentle and quiet spirit, of course, is that which God does not like. And I have to say this because, you know, just like in every other situation where it addresses Christian behavior, there is a behavior that God approves of and likes and will reward, and there's a, a, a behavior that God does not like and that he will not reward. Something that is very precious in the sight of God will be rewarded. There is no doubt about that. I want here to just read, if I may, just a little bit from a very godly expositor. I'm afraid he's, he died hundreds of years ago. But that was before all of this modern feminist stuff was out. This is Robert Layton in uh, his exposition of First Peter. And he strikes a wonderful balance. And I just want to read a few passages from what he says here. He says, love is the prime duty of both in marriage, the basis of all. But because of the particular character of it as proper to the wife, there must be obedience and subjection. Now, he doesn't mean, again, slavely, slavish subjection. That's not what he's talking about. If there be such obedience as ought to arise from a special kind of love, then the wife would remember this, that it must not be constrained, uncheerful obedience. And the husband would remember that he ought not to require base and servile obedience. For both these are contrary to that love whereof this obedience must carry the true tincture, you love that word, tincture and relish, as flowing from it. Now listen to this. Where love commands, love obeys. That's the connection there. Love commands, love obeys. But there is the word of command in there and there is a word obey in there. The bitterness in this subjection arises from the corruption of nature. In the wife, a perverse desire rather to command or at least a repining discontent at the obligation to obey. And then finally, the worth Sorry, that's the wrong quotation. From respect and love to him, the husband, the wife can digest much frowardness. In other words, uh, uh, the, the husband just not getting it in a husband and make that her patient subjection a sacrifice to God. Lord, I offer this to thee. And for thy sake, I humbly bear it. Because your husbands are not perfect. And they're very far from perfect. 
And they often don't do things that they ought to do. And they often don't catch things they ought to catch. And they need your help. And sometimes you need that help sooner than husbands realize you need it. I understand that. And sometimes the husband may have a different way of addressing it than you would want. And tensions can arise and difficulties can happen. That does not give the wife a reason or an excuse to disobey God. No more than the slave has a, a, a reason to disobey a harsh master or that the, we have a reason to disobey a government that we didn't vote for. Do you see? Because Paul says, likewise, in verse, th- verse 1, likewise, just like the, the submission to government, submission of slaves to masters. Christians un- need to understand this. I'm going to address husbands next week. But in view of what Peter says here, we need to understand that this is the way that God wants it. So we go on to verse 5. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. That was the adornment. They trusted in God, which helped them to be the kind of wives that God wanted them to be. As Sarah, she's the example. Sarah is a strong woman in the Bible. We read about it in the book of Genesis. She's opinionated. She's strong. She obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Again, this uh, this has to do with uh, the fear of God and not letting uh, normal things that might uh, persuade you to be afraid of your husband as long as he's not abusing you or sinning against you. Um, you should not be afraid. You trust to God in this, these situations. Now, does this mean that modern wives, contemporary wives, are supposed to call their husbands Lord? Because after all, that's what Sarah called Abraham. No, it doesn't mean that. It's an, ex- it's an example. It's an example. But what is the example? Because he does give the example. What does it mean? Does it mean that, oh, we can just scrub out verse 6 out of our Bibles as if Peter's not applying it to us today? No, it, there is an application, folks. The application is you will call somebody Lord who you have submitted to. Do you see? You're not going to call somebody Lord who you don't submit to. That's the idea. So that it's not the not saying it that's important. It's the idea of understanding, again, just what Peter is teaching here and what Paul also teaches in Ephesians and in Colossians. In other words... Christian wives must be countercultural if they are to be Christian witnesses. They've got to be countercultural because the culture says it's all right 
for the woman to stand up to the man and to give him a piece of her mind. That it's all right to uh, continually argue. But that does not reflect a gentle and quiet spirit. Not in anybody's description of those two things. Now I understand that this can be difficult because even as a man looking at myself and looking at what my wife has to put up with being married to me, I understand that's difficult. So this is not a like a 100% thing. This is, if you like, what a wife, how a wife needs to see her uh, relationship to her husband in those hierarchical terms. This is kind of the grid that God wants you to think in. Because if you do that, you will be more satisfied in your marriage and you'll get more out of your husband than if you nag him. Because husbands resist. Because it's disrespectful, it's dishonoring, and it's unbiblical. So this is the end of this sermon. And I'm glad I'm at the end of it, quite honestly. (laughs) And I've tried to put it across in a way that's uncompromising, and yet I hope that you see that I'm not advocating for wives to be doormats. This is not what the Bible is teaching. You are co-heirs with your husband of the riches of Christ and of salvation in Christ. You are equal in God's sight as human beings. This is just talking about the marriage relationship. Okay, There cannot be two heads. There has to be one. There has to be one who has the final say. And it's not to be the wife. And if you don't like what the husband decides, obedience is not, oh, I'll obey, I'll just do it, even though he's an idiot. Okay? He might be an idiot. Husbands do think and do some idiotic things. Yes? But at the end of the day, nothing gets the wife off the hook. What God requires, and this is the the key here, is a gentle and a quiet spirit, knowing that that is precious, very precious, in the sight of your God. Your Father. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray, Lord, for Christian marriages. We pray in a culture that is so pervasive that it tells women that they can disobey. And that that's okay, because society says it's okay. But God does not say it's okay. And men, as men, we acknowledge, Father, that we are very far from what we should be.
and that there are reasons, good reasons, that we give our wives to be frustrated with us and irritated with us. And that we need to try to understand and listen better and do better. But this is a sermon, Father, this is a text that is aimed uh, particularly at the wives. And so we ask for your grace, your help for our wives, for Christian wives generally, that they may be able to understand and obey this passage as it was intended to be understood and bless them as they apply it in their lives, Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen.